Uh, we're going to be putting in an Acts uh, 25 here this morning. Acts chapter 25, so you're going to be finding that in your Bibles. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've had a number of people um, say something like this to me. Are you still here? Why are you still here? Because a few weeks ago, uh, the pastors announced that I was going to be taking a little, Nancy and I were going to be taking a little vacation. Um, I guess you could call it a sabbatical, but sabbatical is one of those words that just doesn't fit with the door, right? It's kind of like the word reverend. It's just, nah. so we're going to be taking a little bit of vacation. And so, and I don't know if people were shocked or surprised or what uh, when they said, uh, you know, are you still here? Or I thought you were going to be gone. If it was a matter of they actually expected I was going to be gone or they were hoping I was going to be gone. But at any rate, to clear all that up, Nancy and I, in the will of the Lord, hope to launch uh, about the first week of September when we be gone for a couple months or so. So in Acts chapter 25, to kind of put our oars in the water here a little bit, um, we need to remember that the previous governor of the province, Felix, was recalled to Rome. And the reason that he was recalled to Rome was because he was an inept governor. I mean, he was terrible. The reason that he'd gotten the job to be the procurator or the Roman governor, the representative in Judea, was simply because of the fact of his brother, a guy by the name of Paulus, had the ear of the emperor in Rome. And so, you know, it was kind of a political appointment. It wasn't that the guy was particularly good. As a matter of fact, he was very bad. Now, the other thing that was working uh, about uh, about that time was the fact that the Romans... And the Jews never got along. There was always seemed to be uh, tension at the very best, rebellion at the very worst of the Jews against the Romans. And Felix, uh, being an, an, an inept uh, governor, the way that he decided to deal with this was kind of brutal. And, and, and as a matter of fact, he, he put down a, a Jewish rebellion with a lot of brutality and murder and so forth. So much to the point that the Jews actually complained to Caesar and Caesar said, okay, you're out. So at that point, in came Felix. Or, I'm sorry, in came Festus. And we're going to see that in verse 1. Uh, that after, after Festus came to Caesarea, like anybody getting into a new job or so forth, he spent a few days there, you know, um, shuffling the papers on his desk and hanging the pictures of his family on the wall and so forth, and then took off to Jerusalem to um, to get acquainted with the people that he was going to, uh, to, to rule, to, to get acquainted with his subjects. In verse 1, we see this. Then, after having arrived in the province, three days later, uh, went up to Jerusalem, that's uh, Festus, and the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem at the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. So we need to remember at this point that that had been two years that Paul had been in prison. He was imprisoned by Felix as a favor to the Jews. And um, and now, two years later, there's a new uh, ruler in town. There's a new governor. But the thing that's still on the mind of the Jews was their hatred of Paul. The first thing that he encounters when he goes to Jerusalem is not like a get-acquainted tea party. It's He's met by a bunch of Jews that are hating Paul and wanting to kill him. 
And so in order to do that, what they say is, hey, why don't you just have Paul come from Caesarea where he's in prison? Just ship him down here to Jerusalem where we can deal with him. But parenthetically, we know that they had planned an ambush to kill him. So Festus, in verse 4, then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential, influential men among you go there with me. And if there's something wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. So Festus, unlike Felix, who was undecisive, indecisive, a procrastinator and corrupt, Festus at least starts out looking like a good guy. He's kind of coming in large and in charge. You know, in verse 4 and 5, it says he kind of, you know, the Jews asked this request of him and he's decisive. He says, no, we're not going to do that. Come up here. And, you know, it's interesting, too, that as we'll see later as the story develops, so Paul's hope was not in a change of administration. He wasn't hoping that... You know, okay, we got a new guy in office now and things are going to be better. And I think it's an important thing for us to remember, you know, as we're coming up to an election, that our hope is not in a change of administration. Our hope ultimately is not in a change of rulers. Because all men, as we're going to see as this story develops, are capable of self-interest and doing things for political expediency and sometimes not that interested in, in justice. And so, in verse 6, it says, After he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, that's Festus again, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal. So, see, next day, right away, Felix is on it, or Festus is on it, and ordered Paul to be brought after Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they couldn't prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law, the Jews, or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Now, the first question that pops into your mind is, how dumb did he think Paul was, you know, to go back down to consent to going back down to change the view, venue of the trial to go back down to Jerusalem? And, you know, the a change of venue after it's already been decided there were charges that they couldn't prove for the third time. After two years to prepare their case, if there wasn't any charges in Caesarea that were going to stink, there weren't going to be any ones in Jerusalem that were going to stick. But we see Felix here kind of crayfishing a little bit to at least maybe placate the Jews and provide some cover for himself. And so Paul refuses that offer, obviously. In verse 10, Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. Now, at this point, this is like lather, rinse, repeat. This is the third time that Paul has answered these charges, the third time that these charges have been proven untrue and unfounded, that there's nothing to go on here. And yet it's happening again. 
It's like Groundhog Day, right? You remember the movie, the Bill Murray movie, you know, where the guy, he's the weatherman, right, that gets up. And every day he goes out the door and it's just like it was yesterday. So it's the same thing. And Paul is uh, facing the same charges. So there is a different governor now, but it's the same accusers, the Jews. It's the same place. In Caesarea, it's the same charges. It's the same lack of proof. It's the same political maneuvering to do the Jews a favor and the same refusal on the part of the governor to render the obvious judgment and set Paul free. It's the same thing. Not only that, there's an attempt by Felix, as you'll find out next week, to kind of kick the problem upstairs or to uh, put that problem of Paul uh, on somebody else's doorstep. And Paul answers in verse 11. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true as which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Even though this was a continuing saga of the same old thing, with Paul suffering at the hands of an unjust ruler, being incarcerated for something he didn't do, facing charges for things that were that, that he didn't do, he never really pressed for his freedom. As you look through these trials, you never say Paul saying, Hey, you gotta let me go. Because Paul was keeping his eye on the purpose of his being there. I think remembering back to Paul's call, there was a guy named Ananias who was told this about Paul. This was when he was still a rebel, still when he was persecuting Christians and so forth and so on. Ananias was told, I've, by God, I've chosen this guy and he's going to be my witness before kings and before governors. And the Gentiles. And I think Paul knew that. And he also had earlier, after he'd been tried by the Sanhedrin with these same charges and so forth and so on, it says, one night Jesus appeared to him and he said, as you've testified for me here, Paul, you're also going to testify me to me in Rome. And I think Paul had that in his mind. The, the goal, what, what God was doing, they're looking for God uh, behind all of these circumstances that seem so unjust and so repetitive and it's just kind of like, really? And in this proceedings, I think Paul saw the opportunity for the gospel. And with Festus's indecision of not rendering the obvious judgment, Paul made an appeal to Rome. This is the fourth time that the Jews have been able to produce any evidence or witnesses. And the case goes on even though there's no case. It's like a bad dream that just keeps repeating. And actually, if you look throughout the rest of this chapter, the story is repeated again. In verses 1 to 11, um, Luke, the author of Acts, is telling us the story of, of Paul's trials. And then in verses 12 through 22, Festus is telling Agrippa the same thing. What 
what Paul was experiencing was a raw deal. Unfair, unjust, crooked rulers, vicious lies. And what we see in Paul here, I think, is noteworthy. And we see it again and again and again and again in the, throughout these trials and here particularly today. Why is I, I had to ask myself this question when I was studying this. Why is it that the Holy Spirit brings this up again and again and again and again? It's kind of like, okay, okay, we get it. Well, I think one of the reasons is to hear Paul's testimony, which he gives before the Sanhedrin, then he gives before Felix, and he gives before Festus, and next week as Brent's preaching, he'll be giving it before King Agrippa. And those testimonies are valuable. They're brilliant. Scholars have studied them for years about Paul's brilliant defense of his Christian faith before these, um, before these crooked rulers and these unjust charges. So I think that's one reason that we get it is because we get to see Paul's testimony in all these different circumstances and we can learn much from that. That's one reason. But the second reason, I think, is not only so we can hear Paul's testimony, but so we can observe his attitude. His attitude. Because Paul had an attitude of confidence. You know, Christians are often neglectful about attitude. I mean, comparatively so. I mean, if Christians are really concerned that our doctrine is just right, it's got to be this way and not this way, and it's got to be right like that. And that's important. And it's okay. We should attach a lot of importance to our doctrine. You know, we got to use the right words, right? In our Christianese. You know, we're very particular about that. We're really particular about the right music that we want to listen to. Or even the length of the sermon. Nobody look at their watch. But what we're going to see this morning is Paul's attitude of confidence in trials. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from that. His attitude of confidence. The first is when he says, in his own defense, very simply, I've committed no offense against the Jews or the temple or Caesar. These were the charges, the false charges. There was nothing to any of them. He was... He was, cons- uh, he was charged with desecrating the temple, which he didn't do. He was charged with breaking Roman law, which he didn't do. And he was charged with breaking the law of the Jews and rejecting Moses, which he did not do. But you see here, Paul says, I have committed no offense to the Jews or the temple or Caesar. I got nothing to hide. Paul says to the governor, I've done no wrong. And in the next verse, he says, and you know it. That's pretty bold. Boldness is the mark of a clear conscience. And we see this not just in this trial, but all of Paul's trials. A boldness that comes from a good conscience. Proverbs 28 says, the wicked flees when no one pursues. But the righteous is bold as a lion. He was unafraid. Although, you know, in this particular scene, it says the Jews actually gathered around him and started hurling all of these um, terrible accusations. Accusations that if he was guilty of them would be worthy of the death sentence. And you can see him standing around Paul, but Paul 
is talking to Festus. He's not afraid. He's not afraid of the Jews. He's not afraid of the leading men of the city, all the heavyweights, all the suits. And he's not afraid of Festus. All because of a clear conscience. Proverbs 29 says that the fear of a man brings a snare. Well, Paul was not in that snare because he was not afraid. He had earlier, maybe as little as two years earlier, written the letter to the Romans, which in chapter 13, verse 2, it says, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior. Paul wrote those words. And he knew that his behavior was good. He went on to say, but do you want to have no fear of authority, he writes in Romans? Then do what is good and you will have praise from the same. And we see, in, if we went down that far, we'd see that Felix admits, uh, Festus rather, admits that there's nothing worthy of death that Paul has done. And in verse 27, he admits the absurdity of the whole trial. And even though for political reasons he refused to dismiss Paul's case, Felix proclaims his innocence. And by doing that, I guess in a sense that's praise. Paul had done nothing wrong and therefore he had nothing to fear. A clear conscience is the knowledge that neither God nor anyone else can accuse us of a wrong that we have not attempted to make right. Do you have a clear conscience before God? Is there any sin that He's been poking you about that you haven't turned from? Do you have a clear conscience towards other people? Because trials like this one will reveal the condition of our conscience. In trials, our conscience will either accuse us or defend us. A clear conscience is not a luxury. It's a necessity. We all have sorrows and regrets that plague our consciences, but no Christian should suffer from a defiled conscience. Because although we do things that we regret, we do things that cause us sorrow, we do things for which we're ashamed, Hebrews 9.14 tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our conscience. Isn't that good news? He cleanses our conscience. We need to but repent and confess and His blood will cleanse. So the first attitude of confidence he has is because of a good conscience. The second one is because he was subject to the governing authorities. So knowing full well the corruption of the governor, in verse 10 and 11, Paul acknowledges his subjection to Roman law. And it's seen in his respectful language. Now remember, this is the fourth time he's heard the same things. The fourth time he's been subject to unjust rulers, the fourth time he's been declared innocent. The fourth time he's been denied uh, an, a verdict. And yet he's still showing respectful language. All, and it, this isn't just here, but it's all the way through these trials. We remember where this started in Jerusalem. 
the Romans came in to save Paul from the Jewish mob and, and because they were so certain that he was, you know, um, guilty of something or else these Jews wouldn't have been all this upset. You know, they were going to scourge him to find out. We'll just beat it out of him. But Paul didn't say, hey, you can't beat me. I'm a Roman citizen. The respectful language. Do you remember what he said to the commander? He says, excuse me, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen without a verdict? See how respectful that is? He didn't say, hey, you can't do this. You can't touch me. I'm a Roman citizen. Why this attitude? You know, what we believe determines our attitudes. And what we believe is revealed through our words. Jesus said that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Our words reveal our hearts. And when words oftentimes come out of our mouths, uh, we often excuse them and we say, well, you know, that's not really what I believe. That's not really what I think. But that's not what Jesus said. And so we try to control our words, but which, which is, is good in one sense, but we can't mask with our words what's in our heart. And Jesus is saying that we need to focus not on what we're saying, but what we are believing in our hearts. And for Paul, it was simple. He believed that all authority is from God. And therefore, we are both respectful of it and humble in subjection to it. A few years, like I mentioned earlier, he'd written to the Roman church in in Romans chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which are exist are established by God. We are subject to government authority. Even when it is unjust and abusive. Because all authority comes from God. Now there's one exception to that. And I feel like i got to mention it. That's when the government would come in and command what the Bible forbids. Or forbid what the Bible commands. We see that in Acts chapter 4, I think it is, with Peter and John. They were preaching and and they were uh, captured by the authorities. They were preaching Jesus and they were thrown in prison. And then they were warned that they said, don't preach anymore in this name. But, 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 but Peter and John said, whether it is right in the sight of God, you be the judge, authorities. You be the judge, government. And so even when they had to disobey, they still acknowledged the authority of the government. Christians often complain that those in charge don't believe in God's authority. Well, they're godless. They're godless rulers. They don't believe in God's authority. And we use that sometimes as an excuse for not being subject. But listen, friends, what's going on here, what's important, it's not about whether the government believes in God's authority or not, or the rulers believe in God's authority. It's whether you do at the time. What's important is that we believe that God in His authority has granted them authority over them. Because, as I said before, 
behavior, uh, attitudes affect our behavior. And simply behaving is a big deal. Good behavior is essential to gospel testimony, respectful and submissive to authority, not, not righteous indignation. Because, you see, it's unlikely that Paul would have gained the audiences from the higher-ups if he had been disdainful of their authority over him. Paul's behavior through all of this, this repeated lather, rinse, repeat, groundhog day of trials, Paul's behavior was never an issue. So his gospel message could be the issue. The rightness of our case is never an excuse to misbehave. In unjust suffering, we're still to bear the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, and you know the list, and the one at the end is the bugger, self-control. I had a Christian neighbor who was really quite a remarkable guy back in the, back in the valley where Nancy and I lived, and... Uh, he, one of the things that he did was he went out and he picketed uh, abortion clinics. Uh, back This is back in the early 80s. And uh, uh, he had um, quite a bit of experience doing that. And I think, you know, uh, that's, that's a good thing to do. And it was certainly something that he felt con- compelled in his spirit to do was to go protest at abortion uh, clinics. It was a good thing. But but this guy was so belligerent towards the authorities that the story was about his nasty disposition rather than the good thing he was trying to do. I mean, that was the talk in our neighborhood. Oh, did you hear about that guy? Not that he went down and 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 stood for the Christian value of life. But this, this guy went down. Did you hear what he did when the sheriff came out? Belligerent. Nasty. First Peter 2 says this, Submit yourself to the Lord's sake for every human institution. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Our good behavior is designed to silence or put to shame those who unjustly accuse us. We put a muzzle on them. That's what Peter's saying. They're made to look foolish by the by the charging us with things that are so contrary to our behavior. Can you imagine Felix standing there hearing all of these heinous charges about these Jews, about his, how he's broken Roman law and he's done all these things, he's rebellious and he's just a bad person. And yet the way that Paul is behaving himself, you know, the governor's going, what? Doesn't that make any sense? Because there's good behavior. But when we behave, so our good behavior is designed and God uses it to silence those who falsely accuse us. But bad behavior, on the other hand, muzzles us. Now, unfortunately, I had several of examples from my own life to use about this. But the one I'll briefly tell you is Nancy and I just bought a boat a few years back. I mean, just bought it from the guy that we bought in our house, bought our house from. And, and, you know, within a half an hour of the time I bought it, I put it in the river and I drove down the river. And I hadn't gotten 
what, five minutes from the house, Nancy? And Alon pulls up a sheriff's boat. He says, hey, you got a license for that? And I said, no. He says, do you have an operator's permit? I said, no. Do you have a whistle? He said, no. Do you have life jackets in here? One. He said, how long have you had this boat? He said, about 30 minutes. Anyway, as, as this conversation uh, developed, I was thinking, oh, come on. And that came out because that was what was in my heart. That's what came out to this guy. And I said some snarky, nasty things of which my wife reminded me of on the way home. But here's the kicker. After that, the guy asked me, he said, uh, so what is it that you do? I couldn't bring myself to tell him. I don't know if anything like that has ever happened to you. But your behavior is either going to muzzle those that accuse you or muzzle you. Behavior is a big deal. Behavior is good behavior is essential to gospel witness. So we've talked about the confidence of uh, being under authority, we've talked about the confidence of a good conscience. So the last one is the confidence in God's sovereignty. And by mean that, by that I mean not just that we know that God can do certain things, that God is in control of things theoretically, but that He loves us too. Paul's trust in God's sovereign power here is seen, I think, in what he didn't do. He didn't lash out after two years in prison at the Jews. He didn't lash out at incompetent rulers who were selling him out for political points. He didn't come out of prison guns blazing, demanding his rights, accusing or threatening those who had mishandled his case, saying, hey, I want your badge number. This ain't right. It wasn't vindictive, but trusting in God's sovereignty. Because Paul believed, and we need to believe, that in God's sovereignty that He uses the actions even of corrupt, self-interested people and unjust suffering to accomplish His plan. And that His plans for our good. Paul couldn't see God working through the events, but he didn't have to. He believed that God was working His plan. You know, from the outset of his imprisonment, Paul Paul didn't know that he would testify before governors and kings and that God would lead him to Rome. He didn't know how all that was going to happen, but he trusted in God's sovereign control. And that was personal. Because, you know, like I said, it's it's easy to, to trust in God as sovereign and to confess that He's sovereign. As a matter of fact, R.C. Sproul says, most Christians salute the sovereignty of God, but believe in the sovereignty of man. And when we do believe in the sovereignty of man, we're impatient. We're trying to get them to do this thing or that thing or the other thing, trying to direct it, not sure how the outcome will come. But when we believe that God is sovereign, we understand He has all of that mapped out. And our 
Joyful responsibility is just behave. Most of you are probably not familiar with the name Lottie Moon. But Lottie was born in the 1840s in Virginia to wealthy parents. And she grew to the statuesque height of four foot three inches. And she could have done a lot of things. She had many suitors, people that wanted to marry her. But she felt the call of God on her life to go to the interior of China alone. She ministered there 43 years. And during a famine in Tingchao province where she lived, her love for the Chinese people moved her to give away all of her food and all of her money. And she thought, I think initially, that aid would be coming, but it didn't for months. And when friends arrived, they found her at death's door, starving, weighing just 50 pounds but at peace. They were concerned that she was going to die. And when she wrote about this later in her diary, she said this, she said, I have a firm conviction that I am immortal until my work is done. That is not theoretical sovereignty. That's sovereignty over my issues. That's sovereignty over my suffering. That's so- so- sovereignty over me and all the people around me, even those that are oppressing. When you go through a trial, Spurgeon said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow that you can lay your head on. Because you see, God's plan in suffering, the problem with it is that most often it's not understood at the time. We can't see God's plan. It's not understood. And it's characterized by events that we can't explain. God had told Paul, you're going to go to Rome. Okay, Paul, here's where we start. Some mob, a beating, four trials, and you're going to sit in jail for two years. That's what it looked like, but Paul didn't know that. It started out with events that were unexplained, and, and then sometimes there's things going on that just seem totally pointless, like all of these trials. It's like, okay, God, I'm willing to suffer, but I don't see this going anywhere. Ever been there? Oftentimes we can't see. And we don't understand. And there are things that are unexplained or just seem pointless. But the gospel calls us to trust God. To trust His sovereignty, His authority, His faithfulness, His love, His goodness to us. And to affirm, because we know God and we trust Him, to affirm what we can't see or understand. Can we say, can you say, can I say with Job, who understood none of what was going on. As a matter of fact, the whole book is, is, is an expose of him and, and his friends trying to explain all of this suffering that's come on Job. And they get nowhere. But yet at the end, Job said, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. 
Though Job didn't see it or understand it, it was enough that he, God knew what was going on. He says, who is this that hides counsel with others? God, I can't, I can't see. I don't understand. But I know you. And I know that although I'm not being explained and I, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me, you understand it. And that's enough. And I declare that which I didn't understand. That's just beautiful to me. Jerry Bridges says the thing which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Paul didn't lash out at the Jews or the rulers, and lastly, he didn't blame God. You know, if we look back, all this began, this whole episode began with Paul bringing a financial gift to the impoverished Christians in Jerusalem. He's bringing a gift. And, 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 and he also, at the, at, the, at the behest of the elders of the, of the church in Jerusalem, um, he, he went to the temple and to consummate a vow that he had made and to personally pay for the required sacrifices of other men who couldn't afford them. They're both very good things. Good intentions, good things. But he was met with a mob beatings and imprisonment but he didn't complain when the result was unjust suffering he expected it and accepted it we sometimes expect that our good intentions and our deeds will somehow obligate god to see to it that we don't suffer especially unjustly and we're angry with god who in our estimation has allowed suffering to come in that we didn't deserve. But Jesus told us again and again that our mission involves suffering. In the world, he said, you will have tribulation. Paul believed that and by the grace of God accepted it. Can you say that? Do you believe that? Does your theology permit you to accept unjust suffering? Or do you find yourself retreating into a victim mentality and lashing out against God and those who are treating you badly? Paul summarized his his thinking about this, his attitude, his belief about this. He said, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And again, he said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. That's confidence. And will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Every Christian can have that same confidence in any situation and should as we trust in the sovereignty of God. Paul said, I know him. For I know, he says, whom I believed. I know him. Do you know him today? Do you know this Jesus who died for our sins and rose victorious over death? Do you know this one that is seated at the right hand of God? Do you know the one in whom all authority, get that, in heaven and earth resides? Do you know him? 
You know, it's Jesus that's coming again to receive those who love Him and to judge those who reject Him. Do you know Him? And do you know that it was for love that He came to bear the sin and disgrace and shame and judgment on God uh, of God for sinners? Do you know Him? You can know Him today. You can have that confidence. You can know Him by trusting Him with your sin. You can receive His life by confessing that He is Lord and believing, as the Bible says, in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. It's it's that simple. You can know Him today. I, I pray that you will know Him today. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank You for uh, this example of Paul. Thank You, Lord, for the the way that we see his belief, Lord, um, forming his attitudes and his attitudes, his behavior. Lord God, I pray that uh, you would help us to examine our hearts, Lord, um, not to correct our behavior or our words, but, but really to examine what it is that we believe about you. That you are in authority. That all authority comes from you. That you are sovereign a loving sovereign Lord that loves us and directs our steps. And Father, give us the blessing, the ally of a good conscience before You. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.